Hello and welcome to the Second Row Podcast. My name is Parik Kelly and it's back to normal this week as Ushin is back from his adventures. Yes, there may be no Six Nations, but the Pro 14 is back and so am I. Uh, how have you been? Have you missed me? It's been a weird month without you, I have to say. <laughs> More peaceful, quiet. Well, I think I should thank you for the holiday that you let me take so I can enjoy the Six Nations as a fan, but definitely back to work this week. And hopefully all of you who are following us on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast and SoundCloud are subscribed. So we turn up in your pocket this week unexpectedly. That's right. We're here for round 15 of the Pro 14. But first, as always, we take a look at the news and you know what? We'll have a look at the Six Nations. Yeah, I suppose that's the big news at the moment. Obviously, Ireland didn't get the start of the Six Nations that they wanted. England are on flying form and Scotland appear to be getting flying kicks to different limbs. They're losing even more players than they started with in the Six Nations. So many injuries. I'd I'd say they'd be so happy that Bradbury got through a good game on the weekend for Edinburgh. Yeah, and I mean, Ireland have been unlucky as well. The likes of Henderson and Marmion both coming back fit this weekend. It's interesting. It's always a dynamic as well. Do you pull them back into a squad or do you leave them out and give the players who've been training with the national setup for the last couple of weeks an advantage? And at this stage in the Six Nations, we have two unbeaten sides, England and Wales, who are coming together next week. That should be a cracking game. It really will be, but England are going to be missing Mako Vinopolo and Maro Otoje. They're huge players for England. Mako probably more so, just because there's so much depth in the second row for England. Courtney Laws came in last week and had a really strong game against, admittedly, a non-existent France side. Like, what's happening in France? I have no idea. I feel sorry for Garado. Like, he's such a good player. He doesn't deserve to be in the system he's working within. Yeah, Morgan Power looks pretty bored of the whole thing by now. He's just seen so many French sides be a disaster since the last time he picked up a winner's medal. And speaking of people that are unlikely to be getting a medal, well, this year anyway, Italy are having a rough Six Nations. Yeah, after a decent opening weekend against Scotland, Wales came out with a second string side and put them away fairly easily. Italy just haven't kicked on to where you'd want them to, despite the strong performances of their club sides that we'll talk about later. A lot of people say it's coming, it's coming about Italy. Their under-20s for the last two years are improving. There's actually basis to say it's coming now. Yeah, there's good evidence coming through the structures in Italian rugby, but national side is still a way away from it. A couple of good games left, but you know it looks like the winner's probably going to come from England or Wales or maybe Ireland with an outside chance. Well, Wales will be England next weekend. No, but okay. But th- listen, to hear me out. Okay. Then Ireland will win all their games for us, and I'll be in Cardiff. When we, when we play Wales, <laughs> championship and, decider. and I can be there for it, and that'll be great. The Six Nations isn't the only news this week. There is a little bit more around player signings. Uh, Israel Falau has signed a massive four-year contract with Rugby Australia, which will take him beyond the World Cup next time around. Nobody really expected that. Everybody thought maybe a two-year contract and then a big payday in France. I wonder if they've paid so much money so they can take his phone off him. <laughs> there, there is actually rumours that there's some stuff around his social media usage that are terms within the contract so as you know bringing the game into disrepute like unbelievably talented player level one arsehole call completely <laughs> well speaking of like level one players though uh, Dan Carter has re-signed for Racing yeah on a short term gig and probably not even the biggest news in France this week speaking of level one asses Marit Bougelin has basically banned Julian Savea from Toulon and discontinued his contract with immediate effect. Madness. I do love the fact he's actually asked for a DNA test to see if he's actually the same player he recruited. Yeah, I mean, Sevilla hasn't had the best time in Toulon, but this is a little bit excessive. One try in ten games. For a player of Sevilla's talent, that isn't really good enough. It's not. But you know what? Let's move on to the weekend's rugby. And speaking of low strike rates, we'll start with the games on Friday night. 
and the Ospreys played host in Bridge End actually to a pretty understrength Ulster side that were welcoming back a couple of Ireland internationals. Not the scoreline I think anybody was hoping for. Nil eight. There's only one group of people delighted about this scoreline. That was Connacht fans. Because <laughs> it gave Connacht a chance on Saturday to leapfrog and go into the top three of Conference A. But yeah, this game was not good. It was a game of two 22s. Two teams not wanting to go into the opposition 22 and then not knowing what to do when they got there. I was kind of surprised because if you watched select highlights of the first half of this game, you would have actually thought that Ulster were playing okay. But their decision making really let them down and their execution in the final pass was really, really poor. They just didn't seem to be able to put the Ospreys to the sword. The Ospreys, by contrast, were just offering absolutely nothing. Sam Davies looks like a shadow of the player that he was. Like, let's not forget, a couple of years ago, he was being talked about as the next big thing and about taking Dan Bigger's shirt to the Ospreys. Where's that guy gone? I don't know. He He's such an inconsistent player. It's fits and starts across the season. A few weeks ago, we were actually saying he could be the next big thing because that's just the type of level he can hit. He seems to only be able to do that when he's playing Connacht. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's annoying. It really is. <laughs> Luke Morgan, the Sevens convert, kind of had a couple of good moments in, in, in this game. But it was exactly that. It was just individual moments. Like, he had a great break down the wing. I thought that... Hanno Dirksen was decent on the other wing. Even Keelan Giles looked decent when he came off the bench later in the game and in the HIA period. But there just wasn't a whole lot of you know composure on show from anyone's side. Look, Ospreys had no interest in playing rugby. They just kicked the leather off the ball for the first half mainly. Don't get me wrong, the weather in Bridge End was atrocious. It wasn't a bad tactic, but there was no chase to follow up. Ulster had pretty much the run of the pitch most of the time. Yeah, and I think it's interesting watching Ulster when Lowry plays at 10 rather than 15. I just don't think he knows his way around that back line quite as well. So when he's at 15, his individual talent can really show. But when he's trying to link up with McCluskey and with Darren Cave and his wingers, it's just not quite there. He doesn't have the same relationship with John Cooney that Billy Burns has either. That said, his passing is incredible and it's flat. He plays very much the game line, but he lacks the control that Ulster needed. You know what, though? There was some good moments, particularly from McCloskey. You can tell that he's just got a little bit more. And when a player like him is as dominant in a game like this, it talks to the physicality of it. He is just able to bully opposition players. And particularly when you look at the big physical centre he was up against for the Ospreys in Corey Allen, he outplayed him by a mile. In commentary, you're going on about Darren Kay for Ulster. I was like, are we watching the same match? McCluskey was the standout. And the break for his try that he followed up on was brilliant. A great run, a great pass. But the smarts to touch the ball down after that slap back was incredible. Yeah, he was just playing the whistle, which is what you need to do in a game like this. And speaking of playing until the last whistle, Ulster's defence in the last 10 minutes, they held out two five-metre line-out malls in a really, really composed fashion. But let's be honest, a good team scores those tries and puts themselves in a position to win the game. But that was a strength for Ulster across the match. Their mall, offensively and defensively, was very good. They should have got more out of it, to be perfectly honest. They should have. And I'm reluctant to credit the Ospreys too much. I think it was largely ineptitude from Ulster's part. But the Ospreys were getting in around them and disrupting some of their patterns of play. But they just offered so little coming backwards. When they got the ball in good positions, they didn't seem to know what to do with it. And it was indicative of that. Sam Davies was hauled off before the hour mark by the bench with a young substitute 10 being put in. If that's not a show of a lack of confidence in your 10, I don't know what is. 
But look, that really wasn't a good game. Sure, on a night when Cooney left his boots back home, Ulster got out with four match points. And given what happened in that conference, they were needed. Yeah, and moving straight on to the next game, which was Edinburgh v Dragons, and a 34 points to 17 win for the Scottish side, Ulster can't afford to take the foot off the gas. They're in a real dogfight for the playoff places in Conference B. As it is, the Dragons have now racked up their 40th away fixture without a win. Like, even without Jackman, that's still a big mountain they're going to have to be able to climb. And from a timing perspective, Edinburgh during the Six Nations is about the weakest you're going to find them. And... To give credit to Dragons, they came here to play. Like They did throw the ball around smart enough at times. It's just, as the match continued, you could tell what team has a coach for the last 18 months that are drilled and are so sure what they're doing and what team has you know sacked their coach in midway through the season. And you can tell which team knows how to close out a tight game, has the experience of winning and the composure to know what to do when the game gets tight. Edinburgh had a couple of late scores that put a bit of gloss on this. It was a closer game because the Dragons were playing positive high-tempo rugby and the breakdown was a little bit competitive. But at the end of the day, Edinburgh were just a stronger side with better players from 1-15. to And there were some real standout players for Edinburgh, especially Dean and Johnson. A really good centre partnership that created and scored some lovely tries. And if you think of the injury crisis in Scotland at the moment, that's something Townsend will be happy to see. Yeah, particularly Hugh Jones obviously going down this week and going to miss the rest of the tournament. They need to start looking at centres being called up. And you know what, we'll talk about it at the Glasgow game, but there were some names being thrown in the hat there as well. As it was, a couple of tries being traded backward and forward. Johnson's first try, really nice for Edinburgh. But then Dragons got a try back with some simple running rugby. How many times do I give out of people just not drawing a man and passing the ball? That's all that Dragons had to do for their first try. And it was just simple stuff executed well yes that's been said about dragons simple stuff executed well you know what that's what they want <laughs> but what i like seeing is flashy backline moves so edmund's second try was absolutely stunning first phase strike moves off a scrum and just running lines everywhere cockerel can really coach these guys if you ever wanted proof there's a scottish way of playing between this and the glasgow match it's set piece backline moves get the ball moving and make defences sweat. What they won't have liked is throwing a sloppy intercept pass. And that actually put the Dragons into the lead at half time, which was a little bit against the run of play. The problem is they just don't have another gear to kick into in the second half. They didn't even score after half time. And Edinburgh just knew what to do. That final 30 minutes, they just went through the gears. Sorry, they went through the gear and just pulled away from Dragons enough. The carries by Bradbury for try number three were incredible. So this is a guy who's been out with injury for most of the season. He didn't look like it. He no. came straight back in with the type of performances that had you and me calling him out as a likely international for the Six Nations back in week three or four. He's a top quality player and the physical nature of his carrying just created that third try. And he looks like a beast. Like He hasn't let his injury let off like stop his physicality in any way, shape or form. Speaking of physicality, like Duhan van der Merwe absolutely monstering down the wing. But really, he should have been put into touch. More than once. Yeah, but again, you try tackling a giant fridge freezer. <laughs> One thing that really stood out for Edinburgh for me, their kick chase game. Henry Pergas has been running games for them for nine for the last couple of weeks. Really good. But the chases from all of their players, but in particular their back row players, they weren't doing the kind of Irish kick chase game where they're looking to contest the catch. They were just making sure that they were perfectly timed to murder whoever caught it. 
Bradbury must have absolutely put about three guys into next week. It's actually a very smart approach when you know you're going to have some of the best back crows latching onto ball and disrupting ruck ball on a retreating Dragons team. You can't do it to every team because the back three players of better opponents will hurt you. But you weren't going to get a whole lot coming back at you from the Dragons. So, smart idea. Dragons did have some good small cameos. I thought Lewis at 10 was good, but inconsistent. It, he can actually string together a good 70-80 minutes. Dragons will be in a much better shape going forward. I think the challenge for the Dragons is you can't run a game from 10 if you're not getting a bit of support. I think the games where we've seen him be good this year, it's less about his individual level of performance and more about the units around him. Like if the back row are getting absolutely dominated like they were here, your 10 doesn't have enough time and space on the ball. If your centres aren't able to make gain line, then you can use them to relieve the pressure. And once Edinburgh started taking the lead, Dragons' heads did drop. Yeah, and they started to fall off tackles in a way that made it very easy for Edinburgh to rack up that scoreline. Having said that, though, this was a lot more of a contest than Cockerell will have wanted in the first half. But again, big bonus point win at home and really puts them in a strong position in Conference B. Dragons, again, another away loss, but kind of par for the course at this stage. And speaking of par for the course, Munster beat Southern Kings by 43 points to nil. The second time Munster have nilled a South African team at home this year. And the third time to put 40 points on a team in Cork. It's nice stuff. It's great that you have training games in Cork these days. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know what? It kind of was a training game, given that we were against 14 and 13 men for different parts of it. The King's ill-discipline raising its nasty head again. Three yellow cards. We were surprised, and I was surprised at how good Kings were in the opening half hour. Yeah, I think Munster didn't quite get the dominance that they wanted early on. There was a couple of nice little cheeky moments and Cronin got in for a really good try. But with the clock ticking over a half an hour, we hadn't put them to the sword yet. And some of our play was making them look worryingly competent. I was actually surprised at how little you used the wind. In no way, shape or form did you try to pin the Kings back into the corners. I think that was a case of really just knowing how poor the Kings have been this year. There was no requirement to play smart percentage rugby against a team like this. You know they're going to crack. And that was inevitably what happened. And I think the mentality went before the fitness levels did. Just a stupid shoulder charge on Cronin and the Rook. Yellow card for the wrong reason. He got done for playing the nine, but still a yellow card every day. But the thing is, you say you didn't need to play percentage rugby. They would have cracked after 15 minutes, not 50, if you'd done that. That's fair. And I think the difference was, particularly in the second half, I think the coaching ticket were able to put a bit more guidance onto how to play the game. You saw that when we went wide, as we did a lot more effectively in the second half, there was space there. Far quicker hands from our backs. Dan Goggin did well coming in early enough for Chris Farrell. And Andrew Conway was just able to find space wherever he wanted it. Same with Sweetenham on the far side. That all stems, though, from Albie Matheson's introduction. He was incredible when he came on. The ball moved a lot quicker and moved better from his hands. I think he's demonstrated exactly why we brought him in when that injury concern existed around Connor Murray in the first half of the season. He is an experienced player, but he's got a really zippy pass as well. But look, it's very easy to do that when your pack is going forward. The scrum was a great snapshot of that. Oh man, like I think the Kings were competitive in one scrum and that's because they pushed before the ball was in and gave away a penalty. We just drove them backwards as far as we wanted. It would have really skewed the penalty stats of this match. Look, there was more yellows in the second half, tip tackles, a ropey one for a high tackle. I don't think it was the worst high tackle I've ever seen, but they can be given as yellow. 
Yeah, there was one in the Connacht game that was probably similar and didn't get it. You look for consistency, and at least for me, within the game itself, within the Munster match, there was consistency from from a ref that I had some concerns about because it was his first Pro 14 game. Handled the game very well. Yeah, he was good. There was one controversial moment for the Kings when they had a try disallowed. They blocked down a pass, and that wasn't a knock-on, but there was a knock-on just after that. So, well spotted by the refereeing team. And I actually feel sorry for him because if he doesn't bend down to pick up the ball and let's get kicked off his shins, it's a try. Because the ball tipped off his fingers after hitting his shins, it is a knock-on. You look at what Munster will have learned from that game, and it's probably not a lot. There is depth there. A couple of players like Finneen Witcherly were able to come in and have a very good game. I thought Rory Scannell was excellent. Are you looking to prove those guys' depth? That was a game for Johnson to come in at 10 or 22. There has to be more academy players putting their hands up. Did this match need to be a run-out? Probably not, to be honest. And seven tries to nil, 43 points to zero. We got the result that we wanted, but you didn't really take a whole lot from the experience. It was professional. Got the five points. No major injuries. I think Klein and Farrell both withdrawn just kind of for caution purposes. Hopefully. Hopefully. So we move on. Yeah, and we'll move on to Saturday where Zebra hosted Leinster. Lost 24 points to 40, but they made more of a game for it than people expected. Given that they went three tries to nil down, the fact that this was as competitive as it was for as long as it was is kind of a surprise. Anybody who was just watching the scoreline of this and didn't tune in to watch this game will have a very skewed impression because I was incredibly impressed with Zebra here. Not that you could see anything for the first five minutes anyway. Oh man, I don't know whether there was different weather going on in Viadana where they played the game than usual, but it was pretty jumpy pixely stuff. You know what though? Any game where you look at like this, where there was as much open attacking rugby, speaks of disruption to the teams. And when you speak about how much of the Zebra squad and how much of the Leinster squad are currently with the national setup, it's hardly surprising. But a nice opportunity for some of the fringe players for both teams to come out and put in good performances. Yeah, and Zebra stuck to how they've been playing. They did want to play open New Zealand style rugby, as everyone likes to call it. Yeah, although they certainly didn't defend like New Zealand. I mean, I don't know how on earth they conceded a line-out try quite as soft as they did. I mean, don't get me wrong, Porik, I'm not a forward, but my understanding is that it's traditional to position your players between a rolling mall and the try line. Yeah, that's kind of how it's meant to be. Okay, that is still the way to do it. Yeah, but you don't put up two pods if you want to do that. I think the real challenge was that the two Zebra pods were like, in front of where the ball was caught. So Leinster just went, okay, fine, we'll just go around the back of all of your forwards and saunter over the line. And the one person who actually tried to defend it would have been done for coming in from the side if a score wasn't scored. (sighs) Yeah, I mean, although credit to Zebra, they came straight back into it and bar international fly half Carla Canna dropping a simple pass, they probably would have been level within a couple of minutes of conceding that line-out try. I don't know why, but Zebra seemed to score more points when he's not involved. Yeah, certainly for one of their tries, he gave a pass, ended up miles out of position, and they just continued on without him, and it made everything a lot easier. Both wingers got in in either corner without him. And the third try that they got was kind of simple enough line-out mall stuff. I tell you though, Leinster were finding ground in the contact area way too easily. Conor O'Brien seems to have anti-gravity boots. Yeah, he was just barging through people for fun. And when you're gaining that many yards in contact and past the contact, tries just come. Dave Kearney being the main beneficiary of one. <laughs> he was, yeah. But I think the whole Leinster backline were, you know, able to get a lot of yards. And maybe that was because they thought they were playing against a backline made up exclusively of forwards. 
I mean, I was actually struggling to tell some of the Zebra backs apart because four of them were wearing scrum caps. At least the outside centres one was white. Yeah, there was more scrum caps on the Zebra backs than there was on the forwards on the two teams. <laughs> 60 minutes in and it's still extremely competitive. And Zebra at that point looked like they could try and nick this one. They're within a couple of points of Leinster. Yeah, that period from 60 to 70 minutes, I thought if Zebra scored a try, it would give them the confidence to go on and win the match. But the second Leinster turned over the ball... You could see their spirit break. And you know what? Really, really poor decision making from Zebra there. They didn't need a try at that point. All they really needed for my money was one of the imminently kickable penalties to be put over, get the ball back and go for it again. But turning over the ball, I think it was a mall turnover and all of a sudden Leinster have a chance to exit. They win a penalty a little bit later. They build their way down the pitch, get over for a try through Conor O'Brien out wide on the wing. And you know what? At that point, the hearts are completely gone and Deegan gets over for another really soft try. That scoreline is a little unfair to Zebra. But look, Zebra did come to play. Their offloading game was on fire. It was. And the thing is, I love that they have that type of depth running through their squad. Not necessarily the level of skill of all of the players, but playing consistent rugby. You see it with the Scottish sides actually as well. And with Leinster. Good teams have a pattern of play and it makes it really easy to bring that next generation through that next level of players. I think the disappointing thing for me and Zebra was Carlo Canna, who is a senior player and a leader in that squad, was making really poor decisions and executing very badly. You can see why he's fallen out of favour with the international setup as well. But look at Leinster. They're missing so many players and the next step down, let's be honest, still have tons of internationals playing for them. Fardy, James Tracy, McGrath, Porter, Carney. These are all good quality players, but they're not top quality players. And I think what they're definitely not is a top quality unit. Leinster looked very, very low on cohesion. Zebra finding space at times. And I think Leinster are happy they're facing Zebra in the Six Nations, not a Scarlets or an Edinburgh or a Glasgow or a Benetton. Yeah, Leinster's individual talent just about getting them over the line on this one. But speaking of Benetton, they, for me, are the big winners this weekend. They had Scarlets in Italy, and they beat them 25 points to 19 in a pretty significant win, both in terms of their conference and just in terms of their Benetton project and what they're trying to do. Winning these games when you're missing so many players in the Six Nations window is massive. People can easily give out about some of the flaws in the Pro 14, but if you want to create a team and depth, these are the matches you need to be winning. And then undeserved the four match points they got from this. The thing is, you look at the difference in, I guess, name recognition between these sides. The Scarlets are playing with the likes of Dan Jones, who's played in European semi-finals. Steph Evans, who's scored a hatful of tries for Wales. Johnny McNichol, who lit up Super Rugby for the Chiefs and has been brilliant for the Scarlets this year. Admittedly, we've all seen the problems that the Scarlets have had this year. The lack of breakdown expertise, missing Barkley and missing Byrne. But there's still some top quality operators in that outfit. And Benetton just did exactly what they've done when they've been strong this year. Regardless of the missing personnel, they controlled this game. They were composed. They made smart decisions and they executed simple rugby really effectively. Even though it was nearly 20 minutes before the game really got going. Which is shocking because... These two teams like to play good, positive rugby. I think that was probably more about they were testing each other out. They were just trying to find those weaknesses. It was more like a fencing match for the first 20 minutes than a rugby match. But certainly Benetton were able to find space. But once the game did settle, Scarlett scored a wonder try and Hardy was the the person who dotted down at the end of it all. 
Yeah, although it only took about 10 minutes before Benetton were knocking on the door again, unlucky with a kick through, and then they did get a try and McKinley tied it up. Evans and McNichol just were able to find space because Benetton made the right decisions, but they just were a little bit lacking on execution. And when you've got the type of pace that the Scarlet's back three do, you can create opportunities from virtually nothing. Yeah, Benetton had their numbers right, but no one was biting in and tackles, just leaving these gaps for someone to just gas through. It's such a risk with a drift defence like that. If you get beaten by raw pace, that's going to happen. Sometimes you do have to have someone who commit to the tackle. And yeah, you get caught sometimes. Think of Keith Earls shooting ahead out of the line. But half the time, probably more often than half the time, you stop the play. But look, they learned their lesson and held out just before halftime. Scarrets were banging on the door. And if Scarrets had got that score then, the game would have run away from Benetton. You talk about those important minutes just before and after halftime. Benetton showing real composure and real grit and determination to close the door. Really good turnover for their open side flanker, Pedinelli. And then in the second half, despite Reese Patchell making his return for the Scarlets, it was Benetton who scored first. A really soft try in the end. Sperendio just finding space and stepping inside about three defenders for the Scarlets. Way too easy. But it looked great. <laughs> yeah, it was a flashy try, but it wasn't a great try. No, but it was, oddly, it's kind of a symptom off the half. Lots of lows and lots of spurts of energy. And it's not to say that the game was scrappy or messy. It just there was no real flow in the tempo of the game. Well, it was 12-all at this point. And then, like, I love watching this. I love scrum halves tricking referees. But absolutely bought a penalty directly in front of the sticks. And McKinley puts Benetton in the lead for the first time of the game. Yes, the Benetton 9 climbed over. I think he went onto his knees just so he could climb over the, the backwards rolling Scarlet's player. He it thought he was brilliant. doing tough mudder. <laughs> <laughs> it was such smart scrum half play. If you're a Benetton fan, it was atrocious level scumbaggy stuff if you're a Scarlet's <laughs> fan. Yeah, it was definitely one of those, uh, what will we say, divisive moments for fans. But Scarlet's were certainly not out of this game. And Benetton, with an uncharacteristic lapse in concentration, let Johnny McNichol in for another try. I have to admit, when Fonatia took the ball in the run-up to this, I had to check what number was on his back because it's about the first positive contribution I had noticed from him in the entire game. And this is an hour in. He had a very, very, very quiet game and that's being kind to him. Mm. But this was off-kick transition. Benetton weren't quite set, so it's why one of those tries can happen. But looking at it again, Reese Patchell is holding back McKinley from making a tackle. In a running line, he stops and puts his arms out. Oh, didn't spot that one. Nice guy. This is the type of time that Benetton of three years ago dropped the heads, Scarlet's kick on, get another try, maybe another two, and we're talking bonus point for the visiting team territory. This Benetton team do not do that. They literally came up the, the pitch and nearly scored a try straight away. Nicholas with a try-saving tackle, knocking the ball on out the nine's hands. And then after that, McKinley with a crossfield kick with advantage. I'll tell you what really annoyed me about that, though. Crossfield kick, fine. Gets in in the corner. Fine. Annoying, but fine. What's not fine is where a second row has enough time to saunter in under the sticks and make the conversion a gimme. That is lazy, sloppy, disgraceful effort from the Scarlets. And that continued throughout for the rest of the game. Their tackle point went higher. They got a yellow for high tackle and they could have got two or three more because they just went for them all the time. I think their discipline and their concentration just went. McKinley got another penalty, stretched the lead out a little bit more. But you can't afford to let a game like this slip in this way. And I think the Scarlets will be absolutely furious with themselves. They leave with a bonus point from Italy, but this is a direct conference rival. 
This time last year, Scarlets were comfortably in second place of their conference. They look like they're going to struggle to get to playoff spots for their conference. It's not a good look for Scarlets after the highs of the last couple of years. We have said they've had issues. We do have a degree of sympathy for them, but something has to change. My sympathy extends when they get outplayed or outmuscled or outtacticed. It doesn't really extend when they're lazy or careless or sloppy like they were in this game. Yes, great offloads, very pacey backline, but you need a little bit more composure to back it up. But look, they were facing a Benetton team that were composed and hugely physical. Even if they did miss the odd tackle and let Scarrett's in for a few scores. Yeah, Benetton, probably their own worst enemies, but this is just a huge result for them in the context of the conference. And as I said, it's just great for Italian rugby and it's great for the Pro 14 that the league is increasingly competitive. And speaking of teams that are their own worst enemies. <laughs> so you were down in the sports ground for this, I take it. I was. I was in Galway for Connacht v Cheetahs and I was very relieved with that 25 points to 17 win for two reasons. One, we won. <laughs> and two, we stopped Cheetahs getting a bonus point. Which is going to be vitally important. I mean, this was a potential 10 point game, if you know what I mean. These are conference rivals and the result of this game means that Connacht are currently occupying third place, which Cheetahs tied up last year. That's a pretty good result for the weekend for you. It really is. But Cheetahs came to sports ground to play. Maxwani with a very op- early opportunity. I'm surprised a player with his finishing capability didn't finish. Yeah, instead he decided to throw an intercept pass. But you know what? A couple of minutes later, they did get through. Honestly, the thing that really stood out for me early in this game, and for a lot more of this game, Connacht's ruck work is actually really naive. It lacks brains. We're overcommitting and undercommitting at all the wrong times. And then defensively, no one's standing behind the rook. Yep. Defensively, no one's standing behind the rook. And even offensively, you don't have players trapping the ball in the right place. And whether that means the player on the deck is just shoving the ball out, the amount of times the ball squirted out the side and gave Cheetahs an opportunity to attack, it's just not what you expect. Our ball retention in general was poor. Cheetahs competed very well and turned us over with penalties on more than one occasion yeah i mean they did also get done for the odd penalty after they scored their first try connaught were camped on the cheetah's line and i think probably wanted the try although happy enough to give carty the shot at goal it was the smart decision to take the three at that point there was a long game to go get points on the board settle the heads and go again didn't really settle them quite as quickly as you'd have hoped though did it no no it didn't (laughs) it took us until the penalty to put us 2017 ahead for us to actually settle. Yeah, well, it certainly didn't happen straight away. A lot of big carries by Cheetahs working their way up the Connacht pitch. But you know what really impresses me about the Cheetahs? It's not just like headless chicken offloading. They've got really good backline moves with multiple screen runners, multiple layers of attack. And their try came from that. Let's be honest, though. Our midfield defence was shocking for it. They just ran through far too easily. It was pretty porous, all right. And... I think when they were finding that much space in the centres, you had to overcommit players to there, and then they found whatever space they needed out wide. Just too easy. I'm just glad we kept in touch the whole time, though. Tom Farrell with a lovely try. He's a strong, physical player. He scored an absolute peach, and he was great throughout the whole game. Some of his offloading was excellent, but equally, his decision-making really stood out for me. There was a couple of chances where, like, a 50-50, at best, offload opportunity was there and he just tucks the ball in and gets it back sets the ruck platform 
Smart play. The amount of times we give out about players not doing that. It's great to be able to see players make that decision not to make the offload. And you know what? It makes it a little bit easier for their team and the players around them. The greasy ball also was a factor. Like in the second half, the there was a lot of knock-ons. It's no excuse for the handling, especially for Connacht. Like we should be able to play in wet conditions. Yes, I have lived in Galway. I am familiar with your climate. But we did score another of one of these soft ball tries. It was a carrot coffee one scored by Leinster versus Ebre. Yeah, just like the Italian team, the Cheetahs line-out caller made an absolute nightmare of this. Sent up two pods, so when Connacht hit the deck, ready to maul it over, they just had a, that clear runway all the way to the try line. Way too easy. Speaking of way too easy, the Cheetah scrum has Venter scored the softest try he'll ever get. Yeah, he's rapid, to be fair to him, but the ball just fires at the side of the ruck. Two, three quick passes later, and Cheetahs find your outside edge, and he's just gone. And I kind of thought Carty should have caught him and at least scragged him the problem is Carty was had the longest distance to run he still looked like the nearest person to catch him like there was wingers that were falling off from that and you know what it was really poor timing as well because it gave the cheetahs a sense of hope it really really galvanized them and at that point i started to get very worried on your behalf yeah i never felt that there oddly enough like it's one of those weird things, and the second Carty got that penalty, like I said earlier on, to put it 20.17, there was this sense of, we've got this. You could see it in the, in the team and the players. Well, kicking on from that and getting that try in the last couple of minutes, really important, as you said, because the Cheetahs had a losing bonus point other than that. There's a, not a lot of games this season where the Cheetahs have left with no match points. They'll usually be within seven or have got four tries and lose in some monstrous super rugby score. Which oddly speaks to our defence. Even though we were weak, we did hold them out from getting four tries, which they are known to do. I think so. But equally, the Cheetahs looked like a team that were a little bit out of sorts. They weren't sticking that last pass. Max Wane's opening one within eight minutes is a real example of that. How many times do you see the Cheetahs get into the five metre line and not score? They were had a really, really bad day at the office. Yeah. And you know what? They created a lot of fantastic opportunities. I love watching the way that they play. And we've always said the more structured a game is, the less it suits the South African sides in the Pro 14. I think that's starting to change. The Cheetahs, relatively okay set piece, pretty good structured backline moves. I think they're starting to adapt to that Northern Hemisphere game. The thing is, Cheetahs have a good solid scrum, and that's always a good basis. And their lineup's not the worst. I just think on the weekend, Conks was better. Two steals, and in general, we read them well. We just weren't lucky enough with our list to get the ball back. And Delan recognised for that with the Man of the Match award. But you know what? The work by the forwards, in particular around the ruck, needs to improve. Simply not good enough to not be able to secure your own ball with enough consistency and enough dominance against a team like this who were having a bad day at the office. Connacht got out of jail and Connacht fans won't care. No, they will not. (laughs) I tell you what, there was one more game this weekend and I think probably a case of saving the best for last Certainly in terms of number of tries available per minutes of watching. I was going to say, not best quality by any means because... (laughs) No, I just think all of the scores from the Ulster Ospreys game were loaded into this match as well. (laughs) Cardiff playing host to a Glasgow team, missing an awful lot of internationals and narrowly losing Cardiff 34, Glasgow 38 points. Big away win for the Scots and they needed that to stop the rot. They really did. Both teams started this game at a million miles an hour. And never let up. They didn't. And Cardiff actually went over first. Good home win. Some nice kicking. Jared Evans giving a lot of variation to their attack from 10. Looked really strong. But then 
kind of peak Cardiff, the minute they score a try, they let Glasgow back in. And that's just a sign of their concentration levels that they've had all season. Over the course of the 80, their concentration was better, but in these microcosms of little moments, they just lost the head. It would have been great, though, if they could handle Glasgow in any way, shape or form defensively, though. It would, and we talked up the Edinburgh centres earlier, but Nick Grigg put his hand up in a big way for selection for Scotland as well. He just seemed to be able to find space at will from that Cardiff backline. Given they scored one try where he had a form on overlap and still managed to score himself. Oh, silliness. And you know what? Ali Price got a pretty handy try as well. Cardiff just didn't bother to defend both sides of the ruck properly. And fair enough, just wanders in. This wasn't so much a rugby game as like a boxing match where you've got two fighters in the middle of the ring just swinging haymakers at each other though i think they left so many gaps in their defense because they were throwing everything forward and attack for both teams and when you have that much space errors arise and cardiff just made more than glasgow oh my favorite error in this game though nick williams deciding to rock out the ball from the wrong side of the rock like from glasgow's side of the rock not like from the side from literally the wrong side <laughs> i love the look on george clancy's face he's just looking at him like like what are you doing which i think is the same look that most of nick williams's teammates were giving him for all their mistakes i think Cardiff's saving grace was morgan in the back line as from fullback he created so much for Cardiff and kept them in the game he was like the greased up deaf guy and family guy he seemed to be able to wander through that Glasgow backline at will. There were multiple occasions in this game where you just presumed he was going to get put into touch or put on the ground. And he pops up on the other side still with the ball. It was extraordinary. And those moments always ended up in tries for Cardiff. Before half time, he sets up a try. After half time, Cardiff kept the momentum going and score first. The big change for me in the second half for Cardiff is actually that their back row started to settle into the game. I thought Williams had a pretty good game, to be honest. A lot of big carries, but more importantly, the work that he was doing rook-wise and defensively was excellent. Ollie Robinson, though, what a player. He had an absolute stormer of a game. He was everywhere. But the second half never got going in a, in a flowing sense. It was penalty, kick up the line, line out. Penalty, kick down the line, line out. Penalty. It was just madness. Yeah, and the really frustrating thing here is... When you look at the last 20 minutes of this game, where Glasgow got a couple of tries and put up what looked like an unassailable lead, and then Cardiff came back and got a couple of tries and nearly caught them, you would love if the intensity that both of the teams brought to their attack and the composure they got when they scored those tries had run for the full 80 minutes. I mean, I know I'm getting bored, as I'm sure you are, of us talking about Cardiff in particular not putting together 80-minute performances, but they really need to take a very hard look at themselves here. If they use some of the energy in defence would be good as well. Both teams conceding try bonus points isn't great. I know Super Rugby's back, but like that's, you know, in New Zealand and Australia and, oh wait, we have South African teams. But you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> look, talking about any game with 10 tries, there are a lot of strengths for sure. I think 80-minute play, not consistently 80 minutes, but at least playing in the last 20 of the 80 as if it was a full match on its own. Great from both sides. Really big win for Glasgow, but really good performance at times from Cardiff. In terms of drawbacks, though, Cardiff, lack of concentration, not enough focus, not enough consistency, and defensively, very unstructured. Their line was so out of shape on so many occasions. 
And Glasgow, well, they were just dumb at times, to be perfectly honest. They switched off the second they got the 38 points and hoped to get through the rest of the match unscathed. It's the kind of performance you expect from a very confident team playing at home against really poor opposition. I think Glasgow didn't quite show Cardiff the right respect for a game like this. They weren't clinical enough against a team of Cardiff's quality. Cardiff aren't by any means a bad team. They just are unlucky at times. We'll go with that. But how does it leave the conferences? Conference A is getting really interesting. Munster still top on 53 points, but Glasgow right on their tails, 51 points. And then you've got a ton of teams in the competition for that third playoff space. Yeah, Connacht are leading the way on 42 points. Then Ospreys and Cardiff are both on 38. Then Cheaters are on 36. Still in that race. Absolutely. And a lot of rugby still to be played this year. Zebra on 18 points at the bottom of the conference, but at least starting to put in some performances. And that really has to be their goal for the season now. In Conference B, Leinster are as we've said on many occasions, running away with it on 63 points. And the real talking point is everyone below them. Yeah, I mean, with 13 wins out of 15, it's about as dominant a display as you can ask for domestically. But it gets really interesting in the remaining places. Edinburgh and Benetton on second and third place on 41 points. Ulster right on their tail on 39 points. And then the Scarlets behind them again on 36 points. Very close for those playoff places yet. It really is. Dragons and the Kings both on 19 propping up the table. But looking across both conferences, it's conceivable there'll be no Welsh team in the Champions Cup next year. And it really is between Ospreys and Scarlets of that one team that's going to make the Champions Cup. Well, I think we can be pretty confident the Dragons aren't. Cardiff Blues and the Ospreys, same points. Cardiff should know how to play at the business end of a season. Don't forget, they're the Challenge Cup champions. Both Ospreys and Cardiff have to go to the sports ground before the season's up. Needing an away win against a buoyant Connacht side? That's a tough ask. Maybe Scarlets have the easier run-in? I don't know. Edinburgh and Benetton, for me, are just playing better stuff at the moment. They don't look like dropping any points. It could be a situation where we see the Ospreys or Cardiff against Ulster or Scarlets for the seventh space in Europe. But yeah, I genuinely could be top-tier European competition next year without any Welsh representation. And on the basis of the performances this year, it's hard to say that that's not deserved. No, and it speaks to the work that the Italians and Scottish have done to get themselves in the situation where they're dominating in their conferences alongside Munster and Leinster. They've really outstripped the Welsh teams on a performance basis, and that's what happens. And speaking of top performers, we'll go on to the second row top performer and clown the round. And you have picked our top performer. For me, given the nature of the result, it had to go to a Benetton player. There was a couple of candidates. Their open side had a really good game. Their back three looked really assured under a bombardment from Scarlets. But I think Ian McKinley really stood up for them. Missed one difficult kick, but slotted all of the rest of them and was a reliable option. Was making good decisions for them. Nice to see that, given that he's not their regular starting 10, Tommaso Allen obviously being away with the Italian side. And when you compare his performance to Canna's, These two guys are fighting out for that 22 jersey for Italy. We said it a couple of weeks ago that McKinley was coming out on top. He's just proving it again with how assured his performance was. I guess a special mention to Matthew Morgan from the Cardiff team. He looked really good. And that electric break he had down the right wing to set up Cardiff's last try was just outstanding. He was offering a lot of creativity. And uh, your boy Jack Carty was pretty good as well. Two kicks aside, I think he had a superb game. Morgan would have won man the match if he was on the winning team. That's how good his performance was. 
he did. But I think on the basis of the result, I'm happy to give it to McKinley as much as anything else. Uh, Clown of the round. There was a lot of candidates this weekend. There really, really was. We've talked about Carla Canna already for not catching a simple pass. Nick Williams for that DDT he did at the Rook. <laughs> then the TV coverage in general. Zebra Leinster for not having a picture for the first five minutes effectively. And for awarding Leinster's first try to Zebra for a while, which was weird. Then in the Munster match, the wrong names, David Davidson and John Johnson were all playing. Like, what the hell was that about? I don't know, but it was really funny. Look, a lot of contenders, but I'm going to have to push you for who is our actual clown. For me, I have to go with Glasgow winger Kyle Stain. It was a two-on-one. The ball gets popped out to him, and he fumbles it with the try line of begging. It was an easier opportunity than Carlo Canna's. At least Canna had players around him that were going to tackle him. Stain had the try line at his mercy. So that's a fair cause. Top performer, Ian McKinley, for that massive Benetton result. Clown of the round, Kyle Stain. Lucky to be rescued by Nick Grigg getting a try a couple of minutes later, I think. Definitely. And that brings us on to next week's Pro 14 fixtures. Friday night, it's all in-conference matches. Glasgow v Connacht in Scottstown. Ospreys host Munster and Leinster host the Southern Kings. It's funny because you say in-conference games, like they're hugely competitive and will definitely matter, which is true for two of those. (laughs) No, it's a really interesting time and I think it's going to be hugely important deciding the final look of Conference A. If Connacht can steal a win or even a bonus point away from home against Glasgow, that could make their season. And I think the Ospreys are going to have to put up a performance against a Munster side who are riding high at the moment. Leinster, meanwhile, are back home in Dublin facing a pretty demoralised Southern Kings team. I wonder if like the Kings could concede over 100 points in two games. So, moving on to Saturday's <laughs> games. Benetton play host to the Dragons side and they'll be looking for another win to cement their place in the playoffs. Edinburgh host Cardiff, same thing. Then Ulster host Ebrey, needing five points to keep in touch with Benetton and Edinburgh. Same thing for the Scarlets. They welcome Cheetahs to Wales and they really need to beat a side who look tough to break down. But again, if Scarlets don't start picking up points and fast... They're going to have a quiet year in the Challenge Cup and then they're likely to be spending more time in Russia than in France next year. Poor Welsh rugby at the moment. Yeah. Speaking of Welsh rugby and I guess international rugby, there's obviously Six Nations next weekend. Hopefully you can fit in one or two of these, you know, less important games around the Pro 14. France play host to Scotland on Saturday afternoon with Wales hosting England in Cardiff uh, later in the day. That actually will be a cracking game. It will be a big game so much riding on it massively so like we said earlier Wales and England both undefeated so this is the grand slam still eligible for decider and as Irish supporters we will be hoping for a Wales win absolutely and cheering for a big win when Ireland visit Italy on Sunday that needs to be a big points difference one it really does if we have any hope of a championship we need to start building scores on teams now and that's us so thanks everyone for listening we'll be back next week for all the Pro 14 action Please do get in touch on facebook.com slash the second row or on Instagram and Twitter where we're at the second row. 2ND, not the word second. So until next week, goodbye and thanks again for listening. Take care, everyone.